Hello, and welcome to the Working Tools Masonic Podcast, where today we will be discussing stewardship of our buildings. Ladies and gentlemen, brethren all, welcome to the Working Tools Podcast, a casual conversation around Freemasonry. First, it's important to note that our opinions and thoughts are our own and do not reflect those of our Grand Lodge or respective craft or concordant bodies. Please connect with us and ask questions, either here on YouTube or on our Facebook page. We'd also appreciate a thumbs up and especially any comments on our videos. to the Working Tools Masonic Podcast, where today we'll be discussing in our continuing series about stewardship, the care and feeding, if you will, of our buildings. Uh, I'm Matt Apple, a Mason here in the Grand Lodge of Washington, and today we have with us uh, Worshipful Brother Stephen Chung of the Grand Lodge of British Columbia in the Yukon, very Worshipful Brother David Colbeth the, of the Grand Lodge of Wa- who's a member of the Lodge in the Grand Lodge of Washington, and very Worshipful Brother Chris Haynes, who in addition to being a Mason here in Washington, is also chairman of the Grand Lodge Real Estate Advisory Committee, on which I guess actually David also sits. So we have half of our podcast today is from the, that committee. So thank you all for being here, and thank you especially Chris for, for coming to discuss buildings with <clears throat> excuse me buildings with us. Sits sits is an appropriate term because Chris does ninety nine percent of the work in our committee. Let me tell you. <laughs> with, without Chris, we you just stand out of Chris's way. All sorts of cool things happen. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> No, I got a great team. Uh, very good, good, good group of brothers. So uh, to jump right into it, I, I'll say to start with, I'm a lot, member of a lodge that sold their building shortly before I joined. So I have actually never been a member of a lodge that owns a building. We've rented from a couple of different lodges over time, and uh, so I feel kind of, while I'm willing to pepper you all with questions, like I don't know a whole lot about the topic particularly specifically, although I can imagine some scenarios. Well, since you, since you bring it up, and you, while you're the hostess with the mostest most of this time, ask all the questions, I'm going to ask a question. So since we've not been in that reverse situation, as a renter, are you involved in the management and stewardship of the building at all? Or you just pay your rent and say thanks and we're out of here? Um, mostly the latter. Uh, we, other than, than whining or, or bringing an issue to their attention when, when something does legitimately need to get fixed. Uh, we, we pay our rent check and, and sign our lease once a year. And that's about it. We are, we, uh, generally make it a policy to stay out of their way as best we can. Okay. So, uh, Stephen, I, I guess I'm, I'm not sure. Do you, does your lodge own a building up there in BC? Our lodge, uh, in conjunction with St. George's lodge, uh, owns the building in Kelowna. I believe originally it was owned by St. George's Lodge and <clears throat> some years later it was the, they had sold that building and uh, Prince Charles and St. George's are in the building together now uh, and there's the Kelowna Holding Society which actually owns the building and manages the building and there's members of uh, there's two members from St. George's Lodge, two members from Prince Charles Lodge, 
and a member from the Eastern Star on the board uh, at the Holding Society. And they help run the run the place, right? Plus, there's the annual general meeting where uh, uh, they also rope a few volunteers in. All right. And David, your, your lodge down there in uh, King Solomon owns their building, right? Yeah. I think it was in, well, we'll talk about this later, but I think in 85 or somewhere in the 80s was when the management corporations went into effect and uh, it went from the lodge owning it to, it's actually called King Solomon Masonic Temple Association is the corporation that owns the building now and is managed. We currently have nine members, nine, 11, nine, nine members on our uh, temple association trustees and that manage five of them are the, sorry, three of them. Yeah. Well, five of them are currently the elected officers. Three of them for sure. The secretary and treasurer are they're they're on there, but uh, they're not technically members. Well, they're members anyway. So yes, the, but we own our own building. This is the the building we have now is the third building. The first two burned down actually, uh, not necessarily not in the same spot. They were in different spots in the city, and uh, not dig, digging the weeds really really quickly too. But uh, currently, our our title has a cloud on it because uh, which which is written language into the legal description of our building the neely family donated a land originally in the 19 1924 1925 and the, the very last line of our title says to be used for my to be used always for masonic purposes so I, you know there's that <laughs> reminds me you remind me of the uh the monty python sketch where the the first castle, you know, sank into the swamp. The third one burned down, fell over, and then sank into the swamp. But the fourth <laughs> one stayed. So does that caveat on your property uh, mean that you guys could never sell that property? That's a great question. Uh, in theory, that's the, that's the intent of it, <clears throat> that it should always remain, or that maybe it would go back to the Neely family if it would ever to be sold. But that's just the land, technically, <clears throat> not the building or the improvements, in theory. But... Uh, so, you know, is there, are, when I've talked to the title office about it, they said, you know, someone has to, would have to contest it, of course. And so there are ways, and I don't think we want to get into on this show, Chris, but uh, there are ways to try to get that removed if necessary. But we have no intention. I, I just wanted to understand clearly what the true ownership of our building and of our land. And so we did a, a title search on that and, uh, we, I don't think we have any intention of selling, but I don't think most lodges ever have intention or temple corporations have intention of selling their building either necessarily, but things happen. For sure. Um, uh, so Chris, I know Ashler owns their building down in, in, uh, do you have they, is that the building they've always had or is it, uh, an, that your lodge meets in? Um, I think they may have had another building back before the 1940s. Um, but the current building that we're in, uh, we've been there since the late forties, early fifties. And, um, also in the late eighties, early nineties, when, um, uh, we had to go to title holding corporations. Um, uh, so we're, we have the Ashler temple incorporated as the title holding corporation and they are the property management group, if you will, for, uh, managing the asset for the lodge for Ashler lodge. Okay. And Chris, did, did you all buy that building as is, or did you have it built, do you know? 
Uh, no, that building uh, is uh, over 100 years old, and it's gone through a lot of different uh, transformations over the years. Uh, it used to be a hotel, um, and, uh, uh, and then uh, was a Masonic Lodge with commercial spaces on the first floor uh, pretty much, I think, for the last 50-plus years, 60 years in its current configuration. Okay. Interesting. All right, so uh, we've got our, our usual list of questions here to, to discuss. So, well, I guess the, the first one is, is there a, a point in a lodge owning a building? Should the lodge own the building? Is the, you know, is there, a, is there an advantage to that? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that there can be, um, but it's a really important question that a lodge needs to ask itself because there's a, a lot of responsibility that comes with managing a building. Uh, it can be a wonderful asset uh, when managed properly for a lodge, uh, can produce income and other benefits. Um, but if I, on the same token, if a lodge is really truly honest with itself and it says, gosh, you know what, we don't want to be in the, the building management business and we can invest our, our liquid assets into other um, investments, then maybe, you know, that might be best. But it's a real serious question that lodges should ask themselves. It's, so I know the lodge I joined, Robert Burns, before, the, before we merged, uh, owned a building here in Linwood that literally was built in the 20s by the members of the lodge. They, they you know, it's a three-story building that they, they bought the bricks and then they built it kind of thing. And it seems like, to, to what you were talking about, Chris, it seems like a lot of lodges these days, and, and I don't know if it's a comment on masonry or on society or what, but. Uh, comment on myself, I am far from the handiest guy you will ever meet. I'm, I'm probably quite the opposite. And uh, it seems like getting a lot of basic work done can be harder now than it, it seems like it used to be, at least in, in my experience, which is, as I said earlier, limited. So uh, I guess, David and Steve, do you have a thoughts on building ownership as a... Yeah, well, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm a believer in real estate. I I think that uh, uh, over time, the appreciation and natural uh, increase in value is beneficial. Um, the there are lodges in our district that do things a little differently, even though they have a holding society that maintains it. Still, some of their members volunteer a lot of time to help maintain it, and. Uh, there's other lodges where uh, the holding society has just, they, they stopped using the volunteers and they said, nope, we'll just pay people to do it properly. We know it's done by a certified guy and they feel that it's um, their fiduciary duty to do stuff like that rather than use volunteers for, I think, liability purposes more than anything. Um, and you know, as we can probably talk about insurance later, that that's uh, a, an important part when you really get down to the running of a building is um, also the insurance of, um, and covering the people who are working there. Uh, there's there's a lot of different factors once you start talking about insurance, but I think owning a building long term is good for a lodge. Um, it, it does kind of pose different problems as as you go like for example uh our hall the there's been 
three times in the last 20 years that the groups have gotten together to try and figure out about selling our hall and building a, some sort of center. <clears throat> I think the, the last one was a bigger building with we with real estate on the main or commercial on the main floor and then they were looking at doing some sort of retirement um, housing in there um, like some other lodges have um, and so and then that got kiboshed uh, it didn't get passed and now it, it was done again and you know years later now you're you're looking at the Sure, we've got bigger value in the property. You know, it's gone up in value dramatically, but so is everything else that you're going to try and buy to to expand into this kind of idea of uh, having a housing development uh, as part of it. Um, in Kamloops, they did the Kamloops Masonic Temple, and it's a tower, uh, several, I think it's like 13, 14 uh, 15 stories high, I can't remember. Um, and it's got a lot of rental units. But they almost went under. If it wasn't for the uh, benefactors of a few uh, well-to-do members of those lodges, uh, they might have well have lost that building um, because that's a big project to undertake. And, you know, we're, we're masons. We're not necessarily uh, build, uh, building contractors and developers with a lot of experience in that. And so therefore some things weren't maybe as well planned. Um, but those are the, uh, the different things that, that I've seen so far. Uh, but yeah, I, I believe long-term it's worth it. Like for example, our lodge, we don't, I mean, I think we pay a, a nominal dollar per person for rent for the year uh, per member um, because we have tenants downstairs that, um, cover the, the cost of running the building. Uh, it doesn't really cost us to rent as per se, whereas uh, some lodges that rent, they're paying, you know, some hefty money in, depending on the city they're in here um, for, for prime real estate. So that, that means their dues go higher. Yeah, if 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 they budget that way, right? I mean, we we had a whole session on budgeting and finance, lodge finance, and uh, most lodges don't budget. At least in our experience, in our districts that we talked about, don't budget like you do, where you actually take your expenses and divide by the number of members you have, and that's your actual dues. That that was foreign, no pun intended, to us here in Washington. <laughs> that you would actually base it on the actual expenses and not just some random number. Uh, <clears throat> but yeah, I, I agree that if owning a building is a business, you have to manage it properly. You have to have the funding to do it. However, owning real estate, like you said, is how most people, m many of the people have gotten rich except for Bezos and, you know, some of those guys, but uh, Gates and, you know, some of the, some of those names, but they own real estate too. So, uh, it's not just their ideas that made them wealthy, but uh, but owning real estate is a, is a great asset for the lodges and, to have. But if they can't manage it, if you can't manage it, then you shouldn't own it. Uh, you should move on. So that was one thing I, I always wondered. We talked about it before, too. Why don't 
why doesn't every lodge have a million dollar war chest? We've been around, most of us, for many, many years, over 100 years in some cases. And why don't they have a war chest? Uh, lots and lots of money built up. And why are our buildings, many of them, haven't been maintained in 20 and 30 years or more in some cases? And one of the only answers that I got that I kind of finally accepted, I don't know if I just gave up asking or if I just, I think it's probably true in that in, in our lodge in particular, 50 years ago, uh, we had you know, a lot more membership for one. And the membership was kind of like what Steve said, they were kind of handy and they could do things. And, you know, one guy was a, was a carpenter, another guy was a plumber, or they had 10 plumbers, or they had 10 carpenters, or they had 10 electricians, you know, or whatever, or people that did this kind of work. And if a spool of wire went missing down at the rail yard, one of the guys that worked there and the electrical was upgraded and the door needed to be fixed and they found the wood. And, you know, if things like that happened, it was not a big deal. And people donated their time and efforts and, and supplies. And I think over the last 30 years or 40 years, those type of people have moved out of masonry. They're not, it's not the same kind of people. And we're become even less operative uh, in those kind of fields. And so instead of hiring them out, we just always assumed that they were going to have people that could do that labor and do those things. And that's not the case anymore. So I agree. It's been, I've been a Mason now 12, going on 12 years. And the last 10 years on our corporation board, Temple board, we've been, uh, yeah, some heated discussions about having to hire out for some of these things and getting a contractor in and not having just somebody do it. And it's been a, it's been a big change trying to get people to understand they need to pay for these services. Uh, we're, we're going through an electrical survey right now to understand what kind of major changes in our electrical that need to happen. I, I know the knob and two is not active, but there's still knob and tube in the building, of course, but the panels, even the panels we have are ancient. They're, they're mm -hmm. 60, 70 years old probably. And so uh, they need to be upgraded. And so we're, we don't know it's, if it's going to be, you know, 25,000, $50,000, $100,000. We don't know what the number is going to be for our electrical repairs, but it needs to happen. If we want the building to be around another hundred years, that's what I keep saying. I just want to do enough to make sure the building's there another hundred years for the next guys to, and in better condition. <laughs> and then you get guys like me in Lodge who every time I pick up a hammer, I hit my thumb, right? <laughs> so, but we do have like in our Lodge, we have an electrician um, and they hire him to come and do the electrical work because they know that they'll be treated fair. Uh, but that's his business, right? So, um, uh, again, they're, they're still going with using the professionals rather than the volunteers uh, yeah. for, for good reason, I believe. Well, I agree that um, it's critical that lodges do see the management of their real estate asset as a business. Um, that's the only way really truly to ensure that that asset is going to perform and actually take care of the lodge, not just enough to take care of the building, but beyond that, um, you know, uh, it's it's not. I've I've heard somewhere that it's not an asset unless it is income, and and not just income for just enough, but net operating income or NOI. And um, but you're right. You know, we've had 
Um, people had different skill sets, you know, whether it was in the trades, they knew how to take care of the building. But I'll even um, volunteer that a lot of lodges and the concept of property management. And that's a very important skill set um, to start with that. So there's some things that I think that some lodges can do to sort of bake into their process to understand, you know, how to take care of their asset and that sort of thing. And I, you know, we were there about 10 years ago with our own lodge building. Uh, up to that point, the biggest, uh, most contentious items at the uh, temple board meetings was, you know, did we change all the light bulbs that were burned out? And that was the most important thing. And yet the building was kind of in danger of melting around it. And so we started with uh, a protocol that every three to five years that a comprehensive inspection of the building is to be taken. And that includes an envelope study, uh, getting into the crawl space if the building has one, looking at all, having somebody else come in and look at all the systems of the building. So things like electrical you know, would come up because codes are always changing, equipment is changing. And we figured about a three to five year cycle, no more than five years, to have the building um, evaluated was kind of that way of, of people who, uh, it didn't rely on um, the same people being on the temple board five years from now. And that was the thing that we picked up on was that uh, over time, the temple board's gonna completely change. And so we, we had to build in an operating procedure that makes sure that we do evaluate our real estate assets. And Chris, um, is, that, Chris, is that just an inspector, that you have a commercial inspector, or do you have a specialist that comes in to do that? No, we'd actually just do a general inspector. So a, a commercial building inspector would come in and, um, and, and look over the entire building. And based upon his or her recommendations, uh, they would make uh, maybe a recommendation that, you know what, you might want to have an electrician take a look at this thing. So if, if there was like an electrical issue that needed to be taken a look at by a specialist, they, we'd, we'd take that next step. Um, but a lot of it was is, is really understanding, making sure that our building envelope is tight. Um, because uh, uh, at least in our area, uh, it's really wet, right? You know, so looking for leaks, going places that we don't normally go to, things like up in the attic, um, going up on the roof and the parapets uh, for our particular type of building, looking at the flash, um, because most people would just see a bubble in the paint, you know, on the wall and not understand that that could be actually a leak that's coming down the masonry walls of the building and pushing out that paint. Um, Things like that. And do you also, as part of that, then have you have you've already done it in the past, and so you already have an ongoing analysis of lifespan of major equipment, or uh, for example, a roof. You know, roof is a fifty-year roof, let's say, and you've built that in. It's going to cost you fifty thousand dollars, and so you've got a thousand dollars a year essentially that you're saving in a long-term capital budget, or at least in a capital improvement plan and a maintenance plan to replace that in now 30 years left of that 50 year life. Is that something you guys have basically? Um, kind of loosely. Uh, we would like to have it a little bit more formalized, um, but we, we are thinking in those terms. Um, you also have to take into account, you know, inflation. 
you know, over time. Uh, so the time value of money, uh, or, you know, the value of money over time goes down uh, because of inflationary pressure. So $1,000 a month may not actually cut it in that scenario. Uh, plus, uh, let's be honest, uh, you know, a 50-year roof doesn't really last 50 years to die. It's about 35 to 40, depending on, on different factors. And that also requires ongoing maintenance onto that piece of it. Yeah, so you're right. Um, and that's called building reserves. So it's really critical that uh, uh, temple corporations or building associations are thinking in terms of not just paying the taxes and not just paying the maintenance of what they have to deal with this year, but bake in on top of that building reserves because everything wears out on a building eventually at some point, not just roofs, but flashing uh, windows, um, surfaces inside the building, carpeting, flooring, uh, painted walls, uh, even plumbing uh, can wear out over time. And, um, you know, and electrical system upgrades, proper bonding for grounding, all that kind of stuff. It's constantly evolving. So every lodge that has a, um, a building has a, an association or a, or a holding society that manages it for them. And we, of course, have, you know, elected members that sit on each of those boards and have positions like the treasurer, the building manager, the, um, uh, those types of things. Um, and now, uh, did I do I remember correctly? You're on a Grand Lodge committee um, for Washington. Is that right? Uh, yeah, uh, David and I are part of a team of the Grand Lodge Real Estate Advisory Committee, and um, we just got formalized this last summer for the first time. And it was born out of a need for bringing brothers who have some professional background in aspects of real estate, whether it's uh, law or uh, brokerage or even property management, um, that uh, could be a resource group for Grand Lodge. And, um, and we were dealing with the uh, sale of our retirement center uh, that uh, we had in Des Moines, Washington. And that process alone took four years. And so um, what, with the realization of the benefits of having a team of professionals uh, that could kind of help guide and advise, um, not actually provide brokers, not provide real estate legal advice, um, but kind of bring a knowledge base to help coach lodges and help coach Grand Lodge on questions to ask your professional team. So that's, that's how we kind of got started and I also have a background in property management as well. Um, I'm a commercial broker and a residential broker. And David, I believe you're a commercial and a residential broker as well. Right? Yeah. Okay. yeah. So, um, so uh, oftentimes what happens is that a lodge is uh, coming across some issue and managing their building. And oftentimes they reach out to the grand secretary because they don't know who to go to. And what the Grand Secretary has now been able to do is direct them to our team uh, to, so that we can kind of be sort of like a help desk, if you will, uh, to kind of be that first point of contact for lodges to kind of ask their question. Oftentimes, it's, this is a great question for your real estate attorney. And they go, real estate attorney? How would that help us? <laughs> right. You know, um, or 
you know, this is a great question for uh, this type of a contractor to look into this kind of an issue. Um, but most of the questions arise out of um, issues with their leases, issues with uh, building maintenance, uh, understanding resources, all kinds of stuff. So it, 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 we're, getting, we're getting a little bit of a workout already in our young start here since June. Yeah. So, but the focus is to be able to uh, lend assistance to lodges that uh, need guidance, whether it's uh, buying a building or with getting a better lease deal or, or things like that. Now, are you guys um, you know, promoting yourselves well through the jurisdiction that these lodges now know that there's that resource? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, we haven't necessarily been actively promoting it. We have uh, published a couple of articles in, in some of our statewide publications. Um, but uh, they're definitely finding us because, like I said, the, the first go-to is they go to the grant secretary and then the grant secretary punts and uh, gets, gets us involved. And um, uh, so far, it's been uh, pretty effective. Um, we've had probably about four different kinds of issues that have come up. And uh, we've been able to um, at least coach on some questions and, you know, try this. And, and then if you need more help, come back to us. And, and that's how we work. And our Grand Secretary has done a very good job of regional and regular I don't know if it's exactly quarterly or bi-monthly, but it, quite often uh, training sessions for uh, temple corporations and lodge officers. So he's actively out in the jurisdiction all over the state providing training as much as two to three hours at a stint in-depth training about what you should be doing and what you shouldn't be doing as a temple corporation, uh, also for secretaries and treasurers. And so in all of those events, he's talking about their assets and what they're supposed to be doing. And of course, then he kind of becomes essentially the expert, but at least the go-to resource. And so as Chris mentioned, then he usually is the person they contact and then they get in touch with us. And we would rather have that at least on my, at least as far as I've considered, I don't necessarily want them calling us directly. I would think that, it, and we're, we're, I think, and I don't want to speak for Chris, but we, you know, he and I have had many of our meeting after the meetings over the phone, <laughs> uh, hour-long conversations about what, what we think this team is. And it, it's absolutely just that intermediate, a secondary or, or tertiary service to just, like you said, help them identify the questions they should be asking and going to. Even as Chris talked about with the four-year sale, we weren't really giving legal advice. We were just making sure that the right questions were answered or asked of their legal team or of their inspection team or of their title or of their, uh, we, that was one of the great things that Chris suggested was to, Hey, we should hire a real estate broker, even though we are brokers and we could probably guide uh, for sale by owner, if you will. Uh, it was, it was strongly recommended that they hire a real estate brokerage team to sell that building and that property. And that was a great idea finally. And, and I think that was one of the catalysts that got it done. And on that note, we've approached about the half hour mark here on our, our what is no doubt now going to be our first episode about stewardship of buildings. So I want to thank everyone for, for coming out and, and uh, being a part of our podcast this evening. And especially Chris, thank you for, for helping us out and uh, being a part of our conversation. 
And with that, we will uh, bid farewell from the Working Tools Masonic Podcast. Thank you.